We're in a series we're calling Be the Countercultural Church, and we're kind of working our way through 1 Corinthians, but then we uh, made a little detour when we got to 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which says Paul wants to measure maturity, wants to measure health by looking at faith, hope, and love. So we looked at love for a couple of weeks, and a few weeks ago, we started looking at hope. And this morning, we're going to kind of wrap up our little hope section, and next week, we'll kind of wrap up the series when we get back inside. But if you remember, we said that there are three parts to hope. Hope begins with our imagination. Hope begins with dreaming of a preferred future. You then really want that future. You desire the future, and then you trust, you believe that it will happen. And we said that Christian hope is taking our imaginations, our desires, and our beliefs and aligning them with what God says, aligning them with the gospel, aligning them with the Bible. And when we do that, we have Christian hope, and that hope will not be disappointed. Well, this morning, part of the reason that we're going to kind of do service a little differently is we're going to look at something that the Bible calls the blessed hope. Now, for those of you that that may sound strange, it's kind of a churchy word. Why didn't the world you put blessed next to hope? Well, actually, that phrase, those two words come right from the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 13, and you're going to see the words blessed hope, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Let me stop there for a minute. So what Paul says to Titus, as you look back to Christ's first coming, as you look back to the holidays we celebrated Christmas and Good Friday and Easter, as you look back, recognize that that first coming brings the offer of salvation for all people. And it also teaches us to live self-disciplined lives. So how are you doing? When you look back on the mission of Jesus, when you look back on the gospel, you look back at the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, Jesus' first coming, does that cause you to live more self-control, live with more discipline? But he doesn't stop there. He says, that's not even the end of the sentence. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So notice, Paul wants to encourage Titus, and he does that by speaking of Christ's first coming, the mission that brings salvation and causes us to live more disciplined lives, and have the blessed hope, hoping of Christ's second coming, so that we live with hope, also of of allowing the present to be affected by what we're hoping for in the future. So since we're trying to align our imaginations, our desires, and our beliefs with what the scripture says, there are two good places to do it. Look back to Christ's first coming, look forward to his second. I have to admit, as I was uh, thinking of what to talk about today, I was uh, prompted by when Harry met Sally. Remember, I know it's an old movie. I'm an old guy. Remember? And so when Billy Crystal's driving in the car with Meg Ryan, they're having a discussion about who has a darker dark side, remember? And here's what Billy Crystal says. You think you have a dark, let me tell you about my dark side. Whenever I go into a bookstore and buy a new book, 
I always read the last page first because in case I die before I finish the book, at least I'll know how it ended. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about the last page of the book. And so spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the last page. If you don't want to know what happens, well, you need to know what's going to happen at the end. That's how you're going to get your living straight in the present. You know, last words are pretty important. I found a bunch of last words. We're not sure who said these things, but let, let, let me mention a few famous last words to you. Here's one. I think he's just hibernating. I wonder what this button does. I bet I can make the green light before it turns red. You think that's impressive. Watch this. But you know, we have God's last words. The last words that we have recorded for us, the last words of God in the Bible are found all the way at the end. So turn all the way to the end. We're going to read the last page first. And here's the spoiler alert. Jesus is coming back. That's what he says. In fact, we read in Revelation, the last words God says, I am coming soon. They're the last words that he says, I'm coming soon. And Paul says, as you look back on the first coming and forward to the second coming, everything in our lives should be affected. Now, this isn't just something that shows up a couple of incidental places. In fact, Christ's second coming is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament, which kind of boggles my mind because I find Christians argue and debate about more things about the second coming, right? So I say second coming, Christ returning. People think Armageddon, Mark of the Beast. Um, we're thinking apocalypse. We're thinking zombies, all this. Those things may be hinted at, but the Jesus return is mentioned 300 times. We argue about the things that are alluded to or the things that are mentioned once or twice and the things that are crystal clear. Sometimes we neglect or don't think much of it all. We need to keep the end in view. Well, that causes me to ask a question. Why is Jesus coming back? Look, if he accomplished salvation, and because of his first coming, we're to live disciplined, self-controlled lives, why would he be coming back? Well, uh, one simple reason, he comes back to complete the story. Now, a few years ago, most of you probably remember, a few years ago, we came up with the six acts of the Bible, because uh, remember, the Bible's not a collection of little bits that we can kind of pick and choose and arrange how we want. The Bible is one big story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so we came up with six acts, and we normally ask the question, when you're reading in the Bible, which act are you reading from, and which act are we living in? Two good questions asked. So the acts go like this. God creates. Act two, God is rejected. Act three, God promises he's going to do something about the problem. Act four, God appears, right? That's the first coming. God sends, that's the part we're in. We're sent out as Christ's representatives. And the last act, God restores. Jesus comes back to complete the story. He comes back to tie everything up in a nice little bow and make it end as intended. I don't have to tell you, that as you look around, you just see a lot of things, hear a lot of things, and participate in a lot of things that are not God's original intention. Well, God's original intention is the ultimate destination, and Christ's return ensures that. Some of you probably worked in a department or worked for a company that was an absolute mess. Until a new manager, a new CEO arrives, new priorities, new cultures build, new objectives are established, and all of a sudden the mess gets cleaned up and the company begins to become profitable, running as it should. We're not going to talk about Philadelphia, but some of you know, may know of sporting teams that 
are kind of in the toilet and things aren't going real well. Well, when you get a new general manager, please, please, when you get a new general manager, when you get a new coach and you have a new culture and you have new priorities and you have a new plan, all of a sudden the mess gets cleaned up. That's why Jesus returns, to complete the story and fix what's broken. You know, all these years have uh, shown us pretty clearly, the world not only is broken, we can't fix it. Our educational system or any other can't fix it. Economic development, redistribution, politics, none of our, none of our attempts can fix what's broken. Jesus comes back to fix what's broken. So let me say it this way. Jesus does not come back to destroy the earth. He comes back to restore the earth. In fact, the passage that speaks of, you know, Christ coming back in fire, that also contains the story of the flood. The flood didn't destroy the earth. In a sense, what does water do? It cleanses. So God sends the flood to cleanse. Fire refines. Fire restores. So God's original intention can come. There was a professor I used to teach at Fuller Seminary. I used to teach eschatology. That, that's the big fancy word for all this end time stuff, right? And uh, he would often start the course by asking the students uh, three questions. Here are his questions. And so I'm going to ask you. You need to respond, all right? Don't just sit there freezing. Uh, how many of you would like to go to heaven? Raise your hands. Raise your hands. Come on. Uh, there are some, I guess there are some people aren't too bright here. Okay, put your hand down. How many of you would like to go like right now before the service ends? Anybody? Like today. Oh, we got a few. Okay. Some of you want to eat pie before you go. Okay. How many of you would like to wake up tomorrow and there not be any more hungry babies in the world and no one ever starving? How many of you would like to wake up tomorrow and all the graves get empty? How many of you would, let wake up, would like to wake up tomorrow where the creator is worshiped and adored for all that he's done and for who he is? How many of you would like to wake up tomorrow when all of our guilt, and we know it in our soul, all of our guilt is absolutely known to be washed away and forgiven? How many of you would like to wake up tomorrow and have racism vanished forever? How many of you would like to wake up and the world be as it was intended to be? Raise your hand if you want that. If you want that, then you want Jesus to return. Because that, friends, is why he's coming back. But just like I read from Titus 2, we live between the comings, right? We live between the coming when the... Um, crucifixion and resurrection purchased our salvation. We now are to live self-controlled, disciplined lives as we wait in hope for the second coming. And as we live between the two comings, we face a lot of things that are not God's original intention. We deal with a whole bunch of stuff that we wish weren't true and we're never part of God's plan. But we know as we live between the comings that we can rest and we can live in great hope because we live waiting for that second coming. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we live between the comings. So we look back and recognize that because of Christ's work, our sins are forgiven. We have acceptance with you. We're beginning to taste some of what that means. But Lord, we're not tasting all of that. There are lots of things that are not the way they're supposed to be hunger and racism, division, 
brokenheartedness, problems and pain abound in our world, in our families, and in our lives. But Lord, we live in hope. We live in hope that Christ's return will fix all of that. Jesus will fix what's broken, and it'll be fixed forever. We'd like to invite you to stand and to sing with us.
song is a great reflection of what it's like to live between the two comings. We look back, we experience salvation, we begin to taste some of the already, but not yet do we experience it in full. And so we long for the blessed hope, Christ's return. One other question I thought we'd try to answer today is that, well, we said, why is Jesus coming back? Well, when's he coming back? I don't know. Nobody knows. Next question. No. <laughs> In fact, it'll hurt your head a little bit. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus even says, the time of my return, the angels don't even know. Even I don't know, but the Father knows. Now, that'll hurt your head a little bit. The second member of the Trinity, who is omniscient, doesn't know when he will be returning. Only the Father, well, we're not going to solve that this morning. But isn't that amazing? Nobody knows. So you can make all the charts and graphs and have watches and calendars. Nobody knows. It may be today. It may be another 2,000 years. We don't know. Nobody knows. Live between the two comings as if he could come, but as if he may not come as well. Well, isn't he going to come? And don't we live in the last days? Actually, yeah. right in the sermon that happened on Pentecost when Peter gives a sermon, he quotes Joel's prophecy, right? So Joel's a prophet from the Old Testament. And Peter says, well, let me tell you what Joel says. In the last days, and Peter obviously is saying, the stopwatch for the last days starts now. And some of you think, well, Peter must not know how to tell time. It's been like 2,000 years. But if you've ever watched an NFL game, you know what that's like. Suppose you're watching the game and your wife says to you, hey, uh, we've got to get going. How much time's left? Suppose you answer, well, they just had the two-minute warning. Now, does that mean in 120 seconds you will be leaving? Oh, no, no, no. That last two minutes may be an hour, depending on how many penalties, how much. Yeah, we are in the last days. The Bible says so. We're living, and the last days are going on and on and on. Some people like to connect that with what Peter writes in his letter. Um, a day is like a thousand years with God, and a thousand years is like a day. Well, some of you may have heard the crazy story. Well, this guy approaches God and says, huh, God, is it true that one day with you is like a thousand years? Yeah. Huh, well, that must mean um, that a penny to you must be like a million dollars. Yeah, same thing. So the man says, um, God, can I have a penny? God says, sure. Wait a day. <laughs> yeah, we don't know when, but we do know Christ is returning. Live well between the comings. Well, that raises one uh, last question we're going to look at today. Why is Christ's return, like, such a big deal? Why is it mentioned, like, 300 times in the New Testament? 
Why is it so significant that when Paul writes to Titus, a pastor in the church, he says, now make sure you live in between the comings and make sure you encourage everybody in your church, live between the comings. Uh, let me explain it a couple of ways. Here's the first one. Do you know it was not Good Friday until Easter Sunday? You know that? What was the day of Christ's crucifixion before Easter? It was an awful Friday. It was a terrible Friday. It was the worst Friday ever. There was never a worse Friday. But when Jesus walked out of that grave on Easter Sunday, Friday became Good Friday. You see, Easter makes Good Friday good. Easter redeems all those terrible things that happened on Friday. Easter makes Good Friday good. Here's another way to say it. The point is in the pictures. You ever notice when you read through Revelation, there are lots and lots of really weird things. I mean, it's worse than the movies that are on this month before Halloween, right? Uh, One simple example, I, I was looking at this earlier today. In Revelation 17, Babylon is mentioned, and Babylon is called a prostitute. And it says, Babylon the prostitute has seven heads, and Babylon the prostitute with her seven heads is drinking blood. What? What does that mean? Lots of weird stuff going on in Revelation. Well, there are a couple of reasons for that. Let me, let me just mention two. First of all, um, lots of persecution was happening to God's people. And a lot of it was because the Christians would not bow down and worship Caesar as a god. And so they were not only being persecuted, they're being killed for not bowing down and worshiping Caesar. So therefore, John or any other prophet from the Old Testament, they couldn't write a letter that said, Caesar stinks. He would put in danger everybody that reads the letter and they would kill him too. So they had to kind of write and talk in code. So Babylon is actually, you think about it, right? Rome was built on seven hills. Rome is like Babylon, just like the Old Testament Babylon, far from God's intention, far from God's desires. Rome, far from God with seven mountains, right? Rome is bad and Rome will be conquered and Rome's enemies will eat her flesh. That's the point. Um, I, I tried my hand at writing apocalyptic literature this week. Don't mistake this with anything you read in the Bible. Uh, the word apocalypse does not mean weird stuff. The word apocalypse just means to reveal. And so if you have a really old version of the Bible, you'll notice the last book is called the apocalypse, which is just another way of saying a revelation. Apocalypse doesn't mean the end. Apocalypse means a reveal. You're revealing, kind of like a gender reveal party. That's an apocalypse. But sorry, mention that next time you go to one, the parents will appreciate that. All right, so here's my attempt. See if you can figure out what I'm talking about. The mighty eagle once ruled the earth, but has had a mighty fall. The one that flew to the highest peak, even above the sun, to Mount Lombardi, has been cast into the pit. The great horn, whose number was seven plus two, has departed. And the left horn, who was not, then was, and is back again. He now has a black crown on his head that covers his mouth, with which he communicates with the other horn. In the past days, a great warrior arose to devour the flesh of the fallen eagle. What sport was I talking about? Yeah, I'm talking about football, right? 
And so I, I, I wrote in code, that's kind of what John's doing, right? He's writing it. The pictures provide the point. Christ returns. Now everything will be as he, as God intends. He comes to fix what's broken because we can't. But sometimes the pictures are uh, ambiguous, right? So uh, the lion is a lamb. A lot of people believe that the 12,000 times 12,000 are the multitude, right? The great multitude. Lots of ambiguous kind of pictures. Then Jerusalem is a bride, a city and a bride. Lots of mixed metaphors. I was thinking about that this week. We actually have a couple pictures that describe the first and second coming. How many of you remember when goat used to mean you were getting blamed for what went wrong, right? Oh, she's the goat. He's the goat. Yeah, that, that idea comes from the Bible. That idea comes from the scapegoat. And here's what would happen, right? The, this goat would be brought to the temple and the priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat's head and symbolically, all of the sins of the people would then go into the goat. The goat would then be taken to the edge of the camp and be released into the desert. And the scapegoat would carry all of the sins of God's people into the desert, taking them far from the people. That's where the language comes from. Our sins will be removed as far as the east is from the west. The scapegoat takes all the guilt, takes all the blame, and goes away, removing blame and guilt from God's people. Remember when goat used to mean scapegoat? Does that, goat mean scapegoat today? Like when I say, LeBron or Michael, who's the goat? Do they mean the person who all the sins and blame falls on? No. Goat now means greatest of all time. So you can fight about, is it Wilt or is it Michael or is it LeBron? Or you can fight about, is it Tom or is it Montana? Who's the greatest of all time? But you know what? If you take the two goat meanings, we kind of have something related to the first and second comings, don't we? At Jesus' first coming, he was the goat, the scapegoat. That's what the Old Testament imagery is all about. Jesus comes and takes all of our sin, all of our blame, all of our guilt on his shoulders, and he pays the price so that we no longer carry that guilt. Jesus is our scapegoat. But when he returns, he does not return as scapegoat. He will return to be declared by all, the greatest of all time, God himself, who will fix forever what is broken and we cannot fix ourselves. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that you pull back the curtain a little bit to all of these mysteries to allow us to see just glimpses of some of this glory. Lord, we confess that we have a lot more questions than we have answers, but we do have the answers to the most important questions. And those answers are that in Christ's first coming, he was our scapegoat who takes all of our sin removes it from us and pays for it. And he is returning as the King of Kings, the greatest of all time to be declared and worshiped forever and ever. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't miss the big picture in, the spite, in spite of all the details that we sometimes can't figure out. 
Help us just like Paul told Titus, to look back at that first coming, realize that that's our salvation. Let us live disciplined and self-controlled lives because of that, but help us live with a blessed hope, looking to this second coming, when the glorious Son of God returns to be worshiped forever and ever, as every knee bows and every tongue confesses, Savior and Lord forever. We pray in his name.